Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Womanhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, and today I want to talk to you about the burden of the colonial mindset. I am recording this episode one day after the political debate that took part yesterday, um, July 9th. Um, It was between pre-candidates of one of the main political parties in Puerto Rico, the Partido Popular Democrático, or the PPD, which were the defenders of El Estado Libre Asociado, which is considered the um, current um, framework or legal framework that um, establishes the constitution of Puerto Rico and also continues the relationship, the colonial relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico. And I am recording this on July 10th. Um, Some of you have already read some of my impressions via Instagram, but I thought it would be good to, you know, have it on record because there are many things that stirred from conversations that we uh, were witnessing yesterday. Um, I watched it on YouTube and Facebook and um, that is what, not one of the things that I do. I basically just watch the governor debates. I don't watch political parties debates um, because I find them very polarizing. And um, since I'm living abroad for more than four years now, um, it's not, you know, part of my, you know, daily life to, you know, start following all the political landscape that is happening there, of course. I have my family and my friends and we do weekly checkups on you know the, the top news of the island um i mean it's my home country but yesterday it, it really stirred a lot of emotions within me regarding the colonial mindset and 80 percent of the debate was mostly perpetuating the narratives of the colonization and this is a political party that is based on this colonial relationship so of course it can be expected but one would have figured by this time since we have done so many referendums in over a span of 50 years uh, since 1952 that the conversation, the narratives, the way also that the United States have treated Puerto Rico lately um, would have changed, would have become, you know, different. Um, Basing this conversation, this episode on the political party would be a disservice because, of course, this is a structure that is based on this type of ideology. So my desire uh, is to engage with you in, you know, this, um, this road of trying to um, break free from the colonial mindset. For those of you that do not understand what colonial mindset or the, the colonial mentality is, it is the result, the subconscious the internalization of violence it is the belief that the colonizer or the oppressor is inherently superior to ourselves to who we are as people and 
Puerto Rico, unlike many other colonized countries that are currently free or independent or in the road of independence, is a nation that has not been able to heal that first colonization wound in the, night, in the uh, 16th century, in the 15th century, I'm sorry, um, with the uh, discovery, <laughs> unquote, uh, with the discovery of the Americas, you know, the, the first colonizers of Puerto Rico were the Spanish in, empire, the Spanish empire in, um, 14, in 1492, and since then, in 1898, Puerto Rico became uh, trespassed as a territory to the United States. So we didn't have, in a span of five centuries, uh, mostly, um, I count right, <laughs> um, in five centuries, we, we haven't had a uh, independence movement or rebellion movement taking place that took us out of Spain, the Spanish Empire and that helped us break free from the United States Empire. Of course, there is a political par party that was created in the 1960s that is basically uh, favoring the independence of Puerto Rico, which is El Partido Independentista de Puerto Rico. But in these five year centuries, we haven't had a strong popular movement on the uh, independence of the island and uh, the independence not only from the United States, but also when we were part of Spain or the Spanish territories. So that is important to note because currently, even those um, countries or nations that are still trying to break free from, you know, the colonizer landscape and relationship have some sort of violent outbursts or protests on the streets or, you know, like a very strong movement calling for the independence of the country. Or the territory or the nation. And um, in Puerto Rico, in the 20th century, we started seeing some of that, specifically in the 1960s, 1970s, with the, um, the popularization or, or the popularity of um, Che Guevara's movements um, in Cuba and also in Latin America and all these communist um, ideologies and independence of mindset. Um, uh, intellectuals calling for the independence of mindset and breaking free from this colonial change. And we can have um, several readings on the impact that this relationship, this colonialized co colonization relationship has have had in the politics of Puerto Rico and in the mindset of his people. And we can, you know, be very um, skeptic on the way that people kind of allow this relationship to continue to take its course rather than seek to change it. And so far, I've been studying this for over 10 years so far, um, since I began my bachelor's degree in journalism, I did my uh, BA dissertation on the media um, insularism of Puerto Rico how the media contributed to people staying, you know, 
ignorant or in a sense isolated from the rest of the world. And then I continued on my master's degree uh, focusing specifically on the case of the colonial mindset with uh, the first and the second Chechen wars that were seeking independence from Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. And I found many parallelisms between Chechenia and Puerto Rico, but the only difference that I found, um, I mean, among other differences, but one that I want to showcase here is that um, they took arms, you know, and uh, it backfired because they, they were fighting on a disadvantaged level with an opponent, you know, here a bit like art of war, <laughs> um, but with an opponent that, that was so much bigger. But the way that, you know, in the second Chechen uh, war, uh, at the difference of the first one, the first one was the shortest one. The second one, they tried to fix many of the issues, the underlying issues on the mindset of the soldiers and those seeking independence. And in the second one, they uh, tried to strengthen the politics of national identity and the politics of, you know, taking pride on, on the Chechen identity. However, it lasted longer because it took Russia a lot of time to change the narrative to perpetuate the inferiority of the Chechens and to legitimize the, um, the image of Russia as the, the father. So Chechen, the Chechenia as, and the same as Dagestan are considered two regions that are, you know, the rebel childs of Russia. I mean, there's people that would say Ingushetia is also <laughs> one of those uh, rebel childs, but specifically Dagestan and Chechenia um, were considered like the rebel childs of the father and the father figure was being reinforced in these wars. and. We know for sure, I mean, international relations in politics that, you know, it is through crisis that we have, uh, that a national identity gets reinforced by the government and by the state. So it was very, very interesting to see those cases of study. Um, and that was something that I worked on also with Georgia on the five day August war in 2008, that, um, I study for, for my dissertation, and it is so interesting how you're trying to break free politically from this toxic relationship, political relationship with another state um, that was once your colonizer, but try to get the respect or, or seek to get the respect of the previous colonizer on the same similar equality ground, but it doesn't happen. And we see it nowadays with the Commonwealth of Nations, you know, the way that the United Kingdom is still, you know, motherly figure to many of these small nations, independent nations, but still subjected to the nurturing, the trade, the help, the, the consideration of the previous colonizer 
And a similar stance you can find here in Latin America with the way that we see Spaniards, you know, and the way that we approach, um, you know, Spanish investments and Spanish contracts and Spanish politics, you know. Um, it depends, it varies from country to country in Latin America, but there's specifically here in Mexico, there's this view that Spanish is better in a sense. Of course, not trying to generalize here, there are many people that do not care about it. <laughs> but what I've experienced here in the politics side and with colleagues of mine that are working in international relations and that are, you know, in foreign policy spheres, there's this sense that, you know, we never broke truly free from these expectations from these beliefs of worth and it is very interesting because whenever I see the current situation in Mexico like there's these uh, there are many different dynamics that you can find here one it is the uh, malinchismo or like this uh, way of you know, feeling betrayed by your own race and that is like the status quo because, you know, we just follow the rules of whoever was superior or considered superior specifically if you are like white skin or white color skin or, you know, come from uh, higher education or higher class. So the whole uh, conversation on the Marxist view of the economic system and um, how the capitalism and um, its relationship to the political landscape here in Mexico have, you know, um, increased inequality is a whole topic that should be addressed. Uh, I don't know if probably um, we interview someone <laughs> for this, but it would be very, very interesting to, to get into, you know, this uh, conversation, how we place ourselves inferior to people from other classes, higher classes, or from other backgrounds, or other skin colors, or other educational um, um, backgrounds. It brings me to question the whole boarding issue. One of the problems that I found living in Puerto Rico was this heaviness of not only being a colonized person but also a colonized woman. So I carry this double burden of you know being told that you're inferior in everything but also because you're a woman you're more inferior if you do not meet certain expectations on you know society, peer pressure, like you know we are a very small island, and people and people don't see that. They they you you can see it on the on the on the map on the world map, and you can say, oh my god, Puerto Rico is very big. Well, yeah, but you can like get into your car and move one side to the other side of the island in four hours. It's a very small place, and very small industry growth. There are very few media outlets. I'm a journalist, so that's how am I gonna focus. Very, very few um, uh, media outlets, and if you don't make it, if you don't get into one of them, then 
you know, your life is over. And if you want to uh, proceed, you know, like get better, progress as a person, as a citizen, you need to go to the United States because that's the only way that people are being ingrained that that's the image of success. And it's very effed up. <laughs> Because you can grow everywhere else, but you know, the solution is always, you know, grow in the United States. Um, and being a woman there, I felt the heaviness all the time. And the more that I tried to learn, the more that I tried to grow, the more that I tried to also open myself opportunities because there were none. Like I had this desire, this strong desire to report the world, like that was my passion, like I breathe journalism, but the way that we were taught journalism was the American way, so we were taught that if you wanted to be a good journalist, you needed to be neutral, you needed to stop having feelings, and you needed to dehumanize yourself, so the stories that you were telling were not suffering. And I bought that story. I bought it. And when I went to do my master's degree in England, because I wanted to prove that I, I was a very type A student, a very workaholic kind of woman back then. Thank God I'm different uh, in some ways now. You know, it's all a process of deconstructing. I'm still deconstructing. Um, but back then, it was very type A. And I was like, I wanted to prove that I knew English. But I didn't want to go to the United States because, you know, studying a master's degree in the United States was extremely expensive. Some of you that are in the United States know that, you know, you get into student debt loans. And I didn't want to go that route. So I took a loan. You know, I did took a loan. But it was less that I would have paid if I went to um, the United States. And also, you know, like the whole experience of going to another country and, you know, going to England because that way you could prove that you knew English, you know, because you studied in England. And um, it was a very interesting experience because when I came back with my master's degree in international relations to Puerto Rico, which didn't have not even a bachelor's degree and not even a master's degree on international relations. They only had, you know, um, optional classes that you can take, optional courses that you can take in uh, the top university, which is the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras Campus, where I was studying. So that was very important, and it is very important to notice here, is that I tried to pursue what I wanted, in, at the educational level, but there were not the means, there were not the programs to do so. So I needed to get abroad if I wanted, of course, and I did want it. Um, but when I came back, there was a, this whole dynamic of first, you know, having a master's degree from anywhere <laughs> that is not Puerto Rico, like you are overqualified. Suddenly you're overqualified for many jobs for media jobs, for even cleaning tables, for even working at Burger King. Like, you know, it was very hard for me to get a job. And people say, oh, Natalia, but you should have, you know, changed your resume and, you know, just don't put that you have a master's degree if you just wanted to wait tables. First, like, I didn't want to wait tables. And second, even 
when I took out my master's degree, you know, like try to dumb myself down, when I got into the interview, like the person noticed that, you know, you have other education and other life experiences and that you may not be content a long time in a very small job. So that was something that happened. And the second thing that happened was that I tried to, you know, launch my second enterprise, we will to do this, try to continue my documentary production, uh, creating events, etc. And then the monopoly of Nuevo Dia, which is considered like the media, uh, the, the main media outlet in Puerto Rico with the newspaper and digital platforms, um, you know, was very vigilant of what I was doing. And it was very, very hard. May you, you know, may probably take another episode to talk about this. But basically, not only that, but also like the State Department, like the top universities when I tried to get a job as, you know, a professor or assistant professor or something, they were two dynamics in place. First is, you know, you're bringing new ideas to the table to a country that is not open to that or a nation that is not open to that because there is this low image, low self-esteem image of the Puerto Rican. And I've interviewed for my BA dissertation is available at the honors program of the UPR. So I invite you to check that website if you're interested in learning and reading all these interviews on people that are correspondents, people that are journalists, Boricuan journalists or Puerto Rican journalists um, on how they feel about Puerto Ricans and how they view us, even how they view themselves. And um, one of the things that I found was this low self-esteem image of how Puerto Ricans can, of what Puerto Ricans can do first and second, like your situation as a woman. I was being told by the top directors of political science departments where I used to take courses in my BA. I was being told that, you know, get it. I had a very good resume, but I was too young to be a professor. I was too young to be an associate professor. I was too, I had a very acute voice, very girly voice to get students to listen to me. And none of this, I took this as, you know, oh, gender discrimination. No, back then I was very, you know, into the mindset of, I just want to work. You know? <laughs> I was not thinking about, oh my God, that's very discriminatory. That's very, you know, like, that's very macho type, macho mindset of, you know, you approaching me. Um, but that summed up with other dynamics with the release of our second documentary, Ecos del Exilio. Um, just in case you didn't know, we have produced two documentaries so far. Ser Mujer en Latinoamérica is my third documentary. On 2010, um, I co-directed and co-produced the documentary Haiti Espera, which is, you know, Haiti Awaits. That was uh, the 
one year anniversary of the 2010 earthquake in Port-au-Prince and we went there and we interviewed people and we wanted to showcase why Haiti was staying poor. What, what, what is it that was, you know, making the Haitian people not move forward? And we talk about like, you know, we, we did a lot of interviews about corruption and you know, like how ingrained in the mindset of the Haitian people, also with the dependency of international organizations that do not want to fix problems because that there's this need for the conflicts to continue because that's how they get their funding. And so they're not seeking to solve anything because they want to have a long-term project because they're getting finance. And, you know, all these twisted dynamics that you're like, what the F? <laughs> and then on 2013, after trying to find all these jobs, I engaged in also an, a second independent documentary called Ecos del Exilio. And we wanted to um, discover, uncover um, the national identity crisis that the Cuban exile community in Puerto Rico were experiencing. And it was a very groundbreaking investigation and a very soulful one for me because I found myself in many of these stories and looking back I feel like that documentary kind of prepared me to move finally from Puerto Rico and um, that documentary we interviewed uh, three big families of Cuban exiles uh, in Puerto Rico and it's so interesting because we see the Cuban exile community and we always feel and think that the only one is in Miami, but there are many in Puerto Rico and Spain, in Venezuela and you know, in Latin America and also here in Mexico, there's uh, a small, but there's still a Cuban exile community here. And um, in Puerto Rico, the Cuban exile community is about like 20,000 people. And um, it has diminished uh, through time because they have adopted, and you will see in the documentary, to totally free to watch on my YouTube channel. Also, Haiti Awaits is also available totally free in YouTube. Um, so I invite you to check that out if you're interested. These are independent, uh, independently produced documentaries, all totally run by volunteer university students and volunteer professionals that help us make that possible so thank you so much to my teams in Puerto Rico that were in the Haiti Espera um, uh, research and also the Ecos del Exilio one um, and it was very interesting to see like the politics of nationalism and you know start you know start seeing how wound how deep is the wound of those that flee their countries because they're like stuck on time with cuban exiles they're stuck in this time and specifically the first generation because you will see in the documentary that the second and third generation of cuban exiles and their sons and daughters are are experiencing other dynamics you know like cultural assimilation with Puerto Rico and you know very interesting things um but the first generation is this still talk, stuck in time and still stuck in nostalgia. And um, that was very uh, interesting to see because when we launched the documentary, 
the Puerto Rican government and um, you know the United States government was passing through this period of um, you know opening the, the Obama administration was you know announcing that new flights will be uh, allowed for Cuba and that you know he was going to repair his relationship with Cuba in terms of trade and tourism and you know Puerto Rican government was very um, wary of showing anything Cuba related in Puerto Rico because you know we could steer problems and the way that they approached my documentary though they did not see it but I met with you know the Secretary of State like several officials on State Department and they were telling me like this is a good documentary but we cannot show anything related to communism or you know like Fidel Castro or whatever I'm like the documentary is not about that it's about Cuban exiles community and their deal with the national identity crisis it's not talking about you know how hard was communism or how uh, good or dangerous is the communist government or Castro's government in Cuba so it doesn't talk about that but they did not give it a chance so it was very difficult to showcase that documentary it was very difficult also to showcase it in universities because they did not find the relation to you know the current academics and it dawned on me back then November 2013 that my time in Puerto Rico was coming to an end the more that you start to grow the more that you try to expand the harder that the society makes your life that if you sum that is in the professional side if you start summing like you know your parents and your family members telling you like when are you gonna get married when are you gonna find a husband when are you gonna have kids you know like your ex won't last forever and you know I want to see my grandchild before I am dead and you know all these pressures and all these social twisted dynamics on gender violence and micro machisms that we don't count when we are talking about international relations because it's like as if we politicians or we political analysts or researchers or journalists are stripped from humanity you know we just are studying a subject but we cannot have feelings because we are gonna hurt the subject of study and it's like do we really does that makes any service to that that is a whole different conversation i want to know your thoughts on that um just recently if you're interested in knowing about the humanization of politics, I invite you to check the fourth, no, the fifth episode of the Women Who Are International Relations podcast, where we interview Rebecca Irby. She's the founder of the Peak Institute, and she has this amazing um, campaign called Revolutionary Love to humanize the whole nuclear um, industry. Because, you know, one of the things of people that connect nuclear weapons to international security are very, their lenses of security is very dehumanized and that's why they could advocate for nuclear weapons. And that brings a whole conversation on if that's also a new colonization of knowledge, but like, you know, something for another conversation. But today, um, just to end this 
uh, line of thought. In 2014, I closed down Grupo Latitudes, um, my second enterprise, and it was a very painful process. I was also uh, experiencing a very hard process in my personal life because of my father. Um, he was, um, how is it? Um, he was into the hospital. Um, he had to undergo sur surgery and their legs were cut off because he had a very bad diabetes episode and his feet were um, rotting and they had to cut his legs and that in my family was a very hard thing to process and um, I mean he's now better he's okay now <laughs> but you know like it was very draining like the whole episode and in 2014 when, when I was closing down that enterprise and when I was you know helping my family undergo this hard um, <clears throat> episode in our lives um, we, I went on Mar March 2014 to Bogota. That was my first travel to Latin American continent. And I was meeting one of my um, dear friends, Linda Sanchez. She's also an international relations and um, post-conflict um, expert. And she's Colombian, so we met. And she hosted me, and I'm so thankful for that. Linda, if you're hearing this, hi! <laughs> Thank you so much for all those beautiful times and I hope that we can see each other again. She went to Puerto Rico two years after, so I showed her Puerto Rico uh, in 2016 and 2015, 2016, I don't remember. I think it was one year, two years after I went to Bogota. But in Bogota, to tie it into the whole conversation on the colonial mindset, when I went um, you know, you do the touristic stuff and you're like, let me go to the gold museum and let me go to this place and, you know, like, get pictures everywhere. Um, when I went to the Casa uh, Quinta de Bolívar, which is like the place where Simon Bolívar, the, the, the Libertador de las Americas, or like the Americas Liberator, <laughs> whatever that means, um, when I went there, I was, you know, like taking pictures and oh my God, this is so beautiful. Let me take a picture here. Let me take a picture there. You know, like I didn't connect the dots. I was just, you know, very touristy way of approaching things. But by the end, I do remember reading finally <laughs> like this huge wall where they have like the whole history of Simon Bolivar. Because when you enter, like there are many entrances to the house, you know, there's the, the living room, there's the kitchen, like you, you have a lot of places to take pictures and you know, the garden and everything. And when I was reading this wall that had like the whole history of Simon Bolivar, my jaw dropped and I felt like the dumbest person in the whole planet. It was like something clicked on me that the mask of ignorance or the veil of ignorance fell off. And that was knowing who is this person and why have I never heard of this person? I mean, I've heard bad things about Che Guevara. I never studied him, but in the university, you know, they, we have all these independent thinkers and independent uh, advocates and students, 
and they were all wearing, you know, Che Guevara shirts because he looks cool, you know, smoking a cigarette. But we don't know really the history of our continent, of Latin America and the Caribbean. And we only know that, you know, the Spaniards came in 1492 and conquered Puerto Rico and killed the Tainos and killed our indigenous tribes. And, you know, we became slaves in a sense. You know, we brought African slaves and, you know, they mix with the Spaniards and they mix with the indigenous and that's how Puerto Ricans became what we are today, you know, and how the bomba and the plena, which are like our uh, main dances, I mean, cultural <laughs> dances um, are so powerful because that was the way that our people in the 17th and the 18th, 19th century, and even nowadays, resist, express themselves, their frustration, their resignation, their, their, sorry, resignation, no, their resistance to colonialization. And another way that, you know, for those of you that are interested in knowing resistance, Puerto Ricans have resisted in many ways. It's not like we are becoming this passive, like, oh, we are going to allow it forever and we are just colonized forever. No, it's just, it, the structure is so big. But one of the ways that we have resisted, like specifically American imperialism, is through the resistance of the people to learn English. There's this resistance, like English is our second language and it is a mandatory language even up to, you know, from you're a child, child, uh, since you're a child, until you're on the second year of the university. And most books are in English and all these authors of these big, you know, um, successful stories and successful theories that, you know, they have on the education curriculum, which is approved by the United States, are basically American authors and American way of thinking. So we don't have spaces, much spaces, as a, as a society beyond, you know, university, which we know if you're Puerto Rican and you're interested in Puerto Ricans, um, universities are, the public universities are, are being stripped from funding because, you know, it's not good for imperialistic um, uh, countries to have educated people in their colonized territories. And I leave you there with that. But when when I saw this uh, Bolivar thing, that's when I felt like how much of our, our education, how much of my way of thinking, how much of what I learned, what I was supposed to do, what I was supposed to be, is really mine versus how much of that is reproducing the knowledge that I was being instilled upon by my education system, by the entertainment industry, by the cultural uh, remembrances. You know, in Puerto Rico, we have this habit of celebrating Spain's successes in the World Cup or in United States successes in the World Cup and we cherish them as if it's our success even if we don't have our own sports team out there.
And if our Miss Universe pageant um, contestant from Puerto Rico loses, we cheer for the Spanish one or we cheer for the American one. And it is very twisted and very hard to break free from. And yesterday, to tie it in to what we discussed earlier, yesterday I was thinking how much of our politics, our way of thinking, is reproducing the language, is reproducing the tactics, how much of our perception of power, how much of our perception of freedom is connected to the views of our colonizers. And the same I see and the same I ask everywhere, even if you're not from Puerto Rico, even if you're from your own country, I invite you to look upon because something that really dawned on me is that the state's way of thinking of itself and thinking of its people could also be considered a way of colonization. And what happened in Latin America after Simon Bolivar's um, freedom quest and all that followed in Mexico with you know the battle for independence and everything is that you know the new states, the new republics that were being formed reproduced the same models of the Spanish people. Wasn't bringing something new to the table. It was reproducing the same model of governance, but with Mexicans, but with Colombians, but with. So, in a sense, are we really living in societies that are true to our core, to our to our ancestral roots, to the the authenticity of who we are? I don't know. I'm still in this process, in this journey that started basically in 2014, then in 2016, I moved finally from Puerto Rico after, you know, feeling like if I stay there, I was not going to survive for many reasons. If you want to thrive in life in a small island where they make you feel all the time like you're out of the norm that you should conform, that you should just accept the status quo, that if you leave, you're a traitor to your country. And there's no one day that I'm living abroad that I don't feel for my country, for my nation. And I've also met with many people in the Puerto Rican diaspora in the United States. And I found them mostly males leading the movement, discriminating against women that want to have a voice there. You know, I've met with males in D.C., in Miami, in New York, in Denver, like all these big cities that are living the American dream, fighting for Puerto Rico's independence while earning more than, you know, $100,000 per year because, you know, they want to have success in life and that's okay. But it's so twisted that they're asking for Puerto Rico's independence, you know, enjoying the beauty and the glamour and the money in the United States. That's so weird. For me, it is very weird. And it is very weird that even they're, you know, uh, enjoying the benefits of the gender, the privileges of being males, but also 
they are not breaking free from the chains. And they're also not breaking free from the chains of the privilege of gender because they don't care. Whenever I brought, like, that's a very mansplaining thing to do. You know, that's macho type, macho culture, you know, conversation. That's very discriminatory against women. And they get into the defensive, like I'm this bad feminist and trying to hate all men, which I'm not. So it is a burden, in a sense, to have the colonial mentality. Because you can see it also in your own relationship with gender and gender violence. When I started my uh, third documentary project, Ser Mujer en Latinoamérica, I started you know, finding these similarities between Puerto Rico as a, a, a woman nation. <laughs> and you can say like, Natalia, you went very high. Like, yeah, but I, I felt very interesting because, you know, it's an, a nation that has been subjected to so many violences and somehow its voice has been shut down and it is not the same to us the puerto rican people right now rise up and change the government and cut the relationship with the united states when you know we have five centuries of strong doctrination of telling us that we are inferior all the time in many ways and if you're a woman worse because there's other gender stereotypes and other gender dynamics that also take place. And also, you know, living in a Caribbean island is different than living in a big country, you know, in the continental Americas. It is very different. So where to go from here? I saw Puerto Rico as this, you know, women nation being subjected to violence, but I also saw myself in 2017, like I was Puerto Rico. I don't close my eyes. I don't ignore what's happening there. I am not ever renouncing who I am. I'm a Puerto Rican woman. Wherever I go and wherever I show any conference or whatever, I organize something or travel. I'm a Puerto Rican woman, it's part of my identity, it's part of my blood, it's part of my family. I never decided to move from Puerto Rico based on the rejection of my identity. But I chose, I chose, I took a decision to grow as a woman, free from those chains, free from the chains of this colonial twisted relationship. And that's one of the reasons why I also look for moving to other Latin American countries and not move to the United States. I tried living in the United States and it didn't work. It was the seven months more horrible of my existence living in Florida. I traveled to New York, I traveled to Chicago, I traveled to DC, I traveled to several places in the United States and I didn't feel like that was my place. And I'm so tired that we are condemning women for taking a decision to move elsewhere. 
I'm tired of this judgment to the Puerto Rican people. This view of, oh, we should pity them or we should, no. And I'm so tired also, this pressure that's being put on the Puerto Rican diaspora to solve Puerto Ricans, Puerto Ricans issues is not that easy. And I don't have all the answers and I don't have much time for my life to change a colonial mindset. When I was doing my BA dissertation on this topic, when I was interviewing experts for that dissertation, they were you know, estimating that for the colonial mindset to finally shift in Puerto Rico, it would take 70 years, almost a century, from a multi-level approach to change the colonial mindset. 70 years! I was 22, 21 back then. <laughs> I would be 90 when that happened. If, if all the institutions, if all the people were committed to changing that dynamic. And you know, they probably would take longer because not, all, not everybody agrees with that. So, to conclude <laughs> this big episode, um, I, I, I don't feel pain when I speak about Puerto Rico. I don't feel it. I used to feel this heavy burden and this heavy sorrow and this frustration because I wanted so badly for things to work there, for myself, for my dreams, for everything that I wanted to do to change things there. But lately I have found, you know, I'm, I'm embarked in this deconstruction journey for quite several years now and something that I found along the way is that there are places and there are people that can help you heal those deep wounds, those deep worth wounds and one of the things that i found very powerful about doing this podcast and doing you know like all these conferences that we're doing here in mexico and you know all the sessions international analysis sessions that we have been embarking in spanish and also soon in english um and the, and the freedom that i have to you know make mistakes when i'm speaking english which i do it i don't edit it on this podcast and I do it with the whole consciousness that this is my second language and I'm every day I'm striving to become better but I'm not perfect I'm only human so I guess I wanted to share that this podcast the everything that we are doing is part of this effort to get our voices heard to allow ourselves to have a voice, to allow ourselves to hear each other, to allow ourselves to think, to think. Even if it's just questions, even if it's very controversial, even if it stirs the pot, to be able to do it, that itself is healing. One of the tactics that we use, for example, in women empowerment uh, workshops, 
know, here in Mexico, I've done leadership, um, feminine leadership trainings and workshops on women empowerment. And one of the things that we have been able to do is when we open spaces up for women to be heard, to be seen, to be, to be, to allow themselves to express whatever they feel, whatever they think, whatever they want to do, without judgment, we help them build their capacity, their agency, their, we help them empower. It's a similar tactic when you're trying to break free from the colonial mindset. You need spaces, you need people, you need the permission in a sense, even if it's just from yourself or from others, even if others give you the permission to just say what you feel, to say what you heard, to say whatever you think about without fear of being subjected to reprisals or being subjected to more violence. I'm still in this journey. It is a very heavy burden, but I don't see it as a sorrow. I see it now as part of my history and as a blessing. Because it taught me so much that the colonial relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico is not very different between the colonial relationship of gender violence and women. And this macho culture and this patriarchy culture and women is not very different. It is not. Colonization of mindset is putting chains on people's behaviors, ways of thinking, ways of doing. It is internalized violence. And it hurts to break free from this. And it hurts to feel like you are lost in the desert trying to figure out where to go from here. Once you start breaking free from these chains, more appear. And there are these debates like the one yesterday triggering all these emotions once again. And what if we just allow them ourselves to feel them? And what if we reflect upon them and what if we start sharing how we feel how we think where to go from here if you're interested in learning about the colonization of mindset um there are several books by franz fanon and albert memmi that i invite you to check there's also this book on um, the psychology of the colonial mindset or the psychology of the colonized people um, that I also invite you to check. I'm going to list them here. Um, Franz Fanon, The Crash the of the Earth is one amazing book to think about. Um, I also, for the session uh, dissertation that I did for my master's and, and essays on Georgia, um, I, I use also the the information and you know found clarity in the words of james g kellas which is the author of the politics of nationalism and ethnicity 
um, Albert Memming has this book, this amazing book called The Colonizer and the Colonized. Um, there's also this book on uh, Randolph uh, by Randolph uh, B. Persaud and Alina Sajed uh, called Race, Gender, and Culture in International Relations, Post-Colonial Perspectives. And I invite you to check that out. The Psychology of Colonization is a book um, by O. Manoni. I'm going to list all of them at the end of this episode. And if you're into feminist post-colonial theory, I'm just beginning to learn through feminism how to heal. Um, I've found, you know, I started feminism in international relations theory. Now I'm into feminist post-colonial theory. I'm still learning. I don't know, you know, at everything about it, so I'm not an expert on it, but I there are two books that I have found very good. Um, one is The Feminist Postcolonial Theory. This is a reader by Raina Lewis and Sarah Mills. Uh, Chandra Talpade Mohanty has this book called Feminism Without Borders. I invite you to check that out. And also Namita Goswami have this um, very hard book on subjects that matter. Uh, philosophy, feminism, and post-colonial theory. Um, those are my recommendations if you want to you know, get into the deep waters on these subjects. And um, yeah. In 2010 with the BA dissertation, my committee, my evaluation committee was very keen to know what was Puerto Rican's perspectives on international relations, you know, and why I was advocating for Puerto Ricans to cover the world. And they were like, you know, Puerto Ricans only look at their um, navel, navel in the stomach. <laughs> they only look at their navel, they don't see far. <laughs> And these are PhD professors, and these are PhD evaluation committees. And I'm like, you know, all these titles don't mean anything if you don't know how to be human and how to empathize and how to see beyond your title and beyond your position of power, which is legitimized by this, you know, hegemonic masculinity kind of world. Right now, I still have that same dream to recover, to cover the world and to report the world. But I am not sure I'm going to bring the Puerto Rican way of looking at the world. Because though I'm Puerto Rican, my way of thinking is no longer 100% Puerto Rican because I've been influenced by so many of my experiences abroad, of my different conversations, interviews, theories that I've learned. So I don't know how true is that, and I don't know where is this need to categorize everything in order for us to legitimize whether or not it's worth, it's worthy of reading or watching or hearing or not. So if you heard this episode, full episode, I want to thank you. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for understanding if I don't know if you have understood, but if you have understood so far everything that I was saying, thank you. And even if you don't agree, thank you for being here. Because at least 
you know, I get got to say my piece and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on Instagram or Facebook. Drop me a DM. And um, looking forward to more interviews that we are preparing for the next episode. Um, I send you a big hug, whatever you are, even if you don't need it because you have big families around you or, you know, you're okay where you are, I still send you one. There's not a surplus of hugs. <laughs> um, so, talk to you soon.